So welcome to another episode of Staying Sane. Uh, is that what we <laughs> called ourselves? No, <laughs> that's not what we Sanity check. Sanity check. Keep rolling with it. Welcome to another episode of Sanity Check. Um, <laughs> we're a bunch of mildly competent guys with no particular <laughs> expertise. It's Tuesday, February 7th, 2017, um, and I'm Andrew. And with me today are... John. Hi, I'm Tom. Uh, I'm Michael. <laughs> and, t- and today Ben is unavailable because he is uh, grievously ill. All right, so uh, let's kick it off. The judiciary under Trump. Um, we got our, our uh, first <laughs> first nomination for the Supreme Court. What do we think about Gorsuch? Is it Gorsuch or Gors- Gorsuch? Gorsuch. I think it's Neil Gorsuch. Well, we should just choose a way to call him. <laughs> well, Whatever we say, I, well, we'll, we'll, his name will remain the same. It'll be the same person, <laughs> even if we mispronounce it. We don't summon a new human being. Uh, Gorsuch. I looked into his uh, background a little bit, and uh, he's this. So my take on Gorsuch is he's a little bit to the right of Scalia, which is incredible that we could, that there is somebody. Um, and apparently that all comes from his position on administrative law, which we can get into if we want to. It's super fascinating. But um, to me, there's two levels of the Gorsuch thing. There's like him as a candidate for the Supreme, not a candidate, a nominee for the Supreme Court, and whether he is a good nominee and how his judicial history is and all that. But then there's the Merrick Garland thing, which I feel like has just evaporated. But, you know, this seat has been open for a, you know, a year, pretty much, and Obama nominated somebody and was basically disallowed from having that nominee considered. And so, to me, any nominee for this seat is illegitimate because of that background. But, I mean, I would think that... It, I mean, that's not really a tenable position for a very long time, I would think. Which, that he's not legitimate? Yeah, well, uh, we'll yeah, that, that they'll just be an eight-seat eight court. Oh, I expect him to get confirmed, but I still consider that to be a ridiculous travesty. Well, here's... So that's, uh, I guess, two things about those... Ones, one thing you were talking about with Merrick Garland, uh, which is whether he will be confirmed and, and how, and and secondly, though, should how the Democrats should fight about it. Because I think no one is really saying that the Democrats can absolutely keep Gorsuch off of the Supreme Court. That would be ignoring actual math. They don't have the numbers. Well, yeah, they can't to, do to it. Do it's so. impossible. Yeah. The the question comes around to how does he get onto the Supreme Court and should the Democrats work with Republicans to help confirm him in, in, in an up or down vote the way they would have done in the past? Or do they make the point that this should really be Merrick Garland's seat, that the seat was stolen illegitimately uh, from President Obama and uh, make a stand on that and do what they need to do to make that stand, knowing that it may not ultimately result in Gorsuch not being put on the Supreme Court? I guess I would say tactically, if you just stonewall, they'll just put who you know Gorsuch in there, and if you sort of imply that maybe you'd accept someone more reasonable, maybe they would 
negotiate, but uh, I don't really know. They've never negotiated in the past. Yeah, I'm not under the impression that they're, like, particularly interested in negotiating. They certainly weren't interested in negotiating when Garland was on. Um, and there's every indication that they would have uh, held out for four or eight years if it had come up that way. Um, so it's it's a strange... They're in a place where, like... Like, they might think they want to not fight so hard because of setting a precedent, but the precedent is, is done. It's the... The GOP has sort of set that as, like, all or nothing. People are... There are people out there promoting the idea that you just mentioned, which they're saying, you know, let's we should work with them, we should listen, we should be prepared to meet halfway. Um, particularly wanting to keep the filibuster for the, for a, for the next nominee potentially um right now we still have the option of the minority party in the senate to filibuster supreme court nominees but the fear is that if we deploy that then they can change the rules such that you can no longer filibuster supreme court nominees and then they'll confirm him with 51 votes and or more and um get their way and they will have removed that filibuster. So, I mean, I do see a lot of recommendations to the effect of what you're talking about. To me, it's clear that, and this has been clear to me for like a decade or more, that Republicans don't have any good faith willingness to compromise. What they have is a an ability to pretend to be willing to compromise, to pull Democrats to the right, and then to accept the outcome they wanted in the first place or to take their ball and go home if Democrats won't cave far enough. Yeah, one thing working against Republicans is that they all thought Hillary was going to win the presidency sometime in October. Mm -hmm. And so they started announcing um, that they would filibuster anyone Hillary nominated for that vacancy in preparation for... Uh, that that possibility. Um, And so they're on record having said that they would defy the Democratic president on the same issue in the same way that the the Democrats would are talking about defying the Republican president Trump on this issue. So they don't, the the hypocrisy uh, is too thick for them to really make a a solid argument to a, in a broad way that they aren't, um, that this is this is an invalid tactic. I think as far as Democrats doing it, when people are calling for Democrats to do it, the main issue is that it's about an appeal to the Democratic base. That if Democrats go along yeah. with the Gorsuch nomination, um, Democrats will feel that you know Democratic voters will feel that they can't trust those Democrats going forward. And there's most correctly, mo- yeah, and most evidence of the previous election for the president and midterm elections in general is the issue is lack of democratic turnout. So rallying the base, getting the base feeling motivated that de- the Democratic Party is actually going to stand up for them on some level, is pretty essential for them to win. This notion of reaching out to moderate voters and getting these swing voters to pivot is doesn't seem really to be uh, tactically the the accurate approach to how both winning the past election and winning a midterm election. And to me, to address the sort of meeting in the middle and fear of losing the filibuster, if they're willing to, if they're willing to drop it for this guy and get the next guy, they'll be willing to drop it on the next guy and get that guy and the guy after it. It it really, 
there's no there's no saving it if they're willing to drop it and and of course they are i mean i, I mean i yeah. know they are being coy about it but they we've seen i mean they've tipped their hand they'll do whatever they can get away with to get as much of what they want enacted they want this guy on the supreme court yeah, and I mean, they're going to do whatever it takes to get him Reports are that Trump has already told McConnell to go nuclear. The nuclear option is getting not rid of the reports. Filibuster. Trump said that live in a new in a news oh, conference. Okay, so he's, it's yeah, already I on. I was that. watching it on TV. They were like talking to him, and they said, "What do you think about this?" And he was like, "He was like, I know it's not my thing, but I, but Mitch, if you're listening, go nuclear. Like it's a, it's a yeah." Thing. So there, in a way, so one thing we haven't talked about is who Neil Gorsuch is and what his qualifications yeah. are to be a Supreme Court justice. Um, most legal scholars say that Gorsuch is pretty legally qualified to be a Supreme Court justice. He was unanimously approved for the circuit court um, not that long ago, I believe. So his his qualifications he, he is a like he's an Ivy guy like every current Supreme Court justice. They're all straight out of the Ivies, um, Oxford uh, and Harvard. So he's got yeah. a lot of them. Nice. Um, so he's, he's well-educated. I think the, there's some questions about his legal philosophy. He's considered a, an originalist, much like Scalia uh, was sort of the father of originalism, which is that he regards the Constitution in a way that that it should be interpreted based on the founder's idea of what the, of uh, constitutional law at the time of the founding of the country. This is, of course, a position that is more rhetorical than factual because you're basically guessing the thoughts of a dead man based on some words that still exist. And it's hard to know what the dead men think about things like telecommunication um, because it didn't exist then. So, well, yeah. so there's those, there's, there's that, that's who he is a little bit. What else do we know? Well, so yeah, I, I looked into him a little bit. Um, you know, as you were saying, pedigree wise, he's got everything that, would be looked for in a Supreme Court nominee. Good education. He clerked for Anthony Kennedy, uh, current Supreme Court justice. So there is a little bit of that ironic element that um, we're we're throwing the elites out of power in Washington, and then we get the Marshall Scholar from Oxford and Harvard Law School to be on the Supreme Court. But as you were saying, totally qualified. Um, Apparently, he shares with Scalia the ability to write interesting and clear uh, decisions. And I've read some Scalia decisions, and they are really fun to read. I mean, I disagreed with him about everything, but he was a good writer, and apparently Gorsuch is the same way. Um, The big... I I noted three big things about his legal philosophy that that were interesting. So he's a big religious liberty, in quotes, uh, proponent. So he was involved with the Hobby Lobby decision, which was the one about whether the company should be having, should have to cover contraceptives as part of the, their employee insurance plan. Um, and his, his position on that ended up being that they should have the freedom to follow their religious beliefs and not pay for that. He, um, there's this, (laughs) this concept called Chevron deference, which comes from a a case in front of the Supreme Court some decades ago um, that said when a law is ambiguous, then the agency responsible for executing the law will have wide uh, ground to interpret. So this is this is, for example, how the EPA is able to regulate carbon 
uh, carbon dioxide as a pollutant because they have that wide space to just to say when the law says we have to control pollutants we can decide this thing is a pollutant just as one example so Gorsuch does not like Chevron deference and believes that um, agencies should only be allowed to enforce the specifically enumerated uh, clear points that are addressed in the law and if it's not if it's ambiguous in the law then they should be very limited in what they're allowed to do so this would be a big change in thinking around what's legal and what's not and then the last part this has an even more obscure name dormant commerce clause this is the idea that um a lot of the ways the federal government controls or, or tries to control certain things that states do is by asserting that uh they, because of the Commerce Clause, anything that affects interstate commerce falls under federal jurisdiction. Um, and so this means that if a state does anything that could affect interstate commerce, the federal government regards itself as allowed to intervene. Gorsuch, Gorsuch does not agree with that. He does not think, he thinks the Commerce Clause gives the federal government the ability to create laws that handle interstate commerce. But they do not create this domain of interstate commerce that states are forbidden from ever impinging on. So it's hard. I feel like that's a hard one to make sexy, but it's a really big deal um, in terms of the balance of power between the states and the federal government. And it's and it's very unusual for Gorsuch to be against that. Although he does share that with Scalia. So. Um, the one of these that he differs from Scalia on, and the one that makes him more conservative than Scalia, is the Chevron deference one, about the administrative uh, leeway to interpret laws. Scalia believed that agencies should have wide leeway, and Gorsuch does not. So, that's what I found out. Tom, does that change any of your feeling about this? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sort of digesting some of this stuff, because I didn't, I didn't know as much about him. I, I think two things. About the dormant commerce clause. Two things that made me, I was thinking about while you were talking about that was just a little bit confused about why Trump would put this guy up from the standpoint that like I don't feel like he really cares about religion that much himself, and now that he's the president, I would think he'd actually want you know he clearly likes the idea that he has a bunch of power. Um, I wonder if he knows what this guy stands for. <laughs> Well, I mean, going into the Trump psychology of it, one thing is it plays strongly to the evangelical and Christian base yes. that he's recruited. Gorsuch has been a, a person that they've, uh, they, they've rallied behind for, for quite some time and has been considered sort of an heir to Scalia, and they really wanted another Scalia, as he said. There's also a train of thought that goes that uh, he was the handsomest of the potential candidates, oh, yeah. and Trump really <laughs> likes or values oh, wow. appearance. And if you look at yeah. any photo of him, he is a silver fox, as has been described. Mm-hmm. He's well, also quite that. young. He's only 49. I was going to say. So he would have a long time to be on the bench. So if his, him being placed in the Supreme Court would be a, a pretty pivotal uh, weight on the Supreme Court for years to come. He's also said okay. to be, oh, sorry, but he's also said to be the most personable of the people mm-hmm. that like he has a good, polite, fun. He's fun yeah, to hang he, out with. He has an insouciant sense of humor. Like when he graduated high school, he said he was started the Fascism Forever Club, which he didn't do. But it was just a little ribbing, gentle ribbing, gentle pro-fascist ribbing of the uh, stu- 
teachers at the school he went to. I mean, to be fair, I did a bunch of dumb stuff in high school too. But I mean, yeah, I it said is, it's ins- it does look very funny now. It's in insouciant. That's all. That's all I'm saying. Well, who wouldn't want to hang out with a guy like it, that? Insouciant, showing a casual lack of concern, <laughs> indifferent. Yeah. Don't say we never taught um, you anything. So, yeah, he's 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 got qualifications. So so then. Tom, outside of knowing a little bit more about him, do you? What do you? Do you, does that push any thoughts further? Yeah, I mean, my next question would be if we did keep this. Uh, you know, like they've been pretty clear in the Republican base they wanted someone to replace Scalia, and that's the thing they've been saying about. Is is the next guy worse? Do we know? Worse. Yeah, is hard that's to not a good quantify. So, He's similar, although with some interesting differences. I also have a problem with the idea that this is like the Antonin Scalia Memorial Supreme Court seat. Yeah. That's not how it works. But, um, I, I mean, to, to, the Scalia had weird positive points, and this guy shares some of those. Um, he actually does really believe in like the limits of executive power and stuff, just like Scalia did. I don't know I don't about know. that because again, I, I mean, I point if you look up anything Scalia wrote in regard to terrorism um, in the aftermath of nine eleven and and so forth, with you know executive authority to indefinitely retain people. Well, he was true. not he also he did, did not cap executive authority on a regular basis. So I don't. And know. he did declare that George W. was president that one time too. So yeah, that's a good point. Um, everything I'm saying is is from SCOTUS blog. So, um, so do you, I mean, I guess to wrap up that the section on Gorsuch, I mean, I think there are there are definitely better people for the Supreme Court, but I think there are also probably a lot of worse people. And I think what what you guys said at the very beginning, like why, what should the the Democrats do? I think they just have to. They have to filibuster almost on principle to try and rile up their base because it's just so unfair that this person's even getting a chance, you know, so it almost doesn't matter. Yeah. I I have a little bit of a disagreement with some of that. Uh, oh, but I don't mean to Can interrupt. Can I just jump in? That's the mildest call for revolution I've ever heard. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a couple of disagreements. So, um... I don't know that I agree that there are many people who would be worse because mm. the Supreme Court is responsible for some pretty heavy stuff and the and having someone this conservative get put on is um it, I I don't know it, it's going to be pretty bad it's going to be bad on abortion rights it's going to be bad on um what they call religi- religious liberty and what I more think of state imposed Christianity uh, it's going to be bad on a whole variety of levels. So that's bad. Um, Democrats are in a situation where they can't stop him from getting confirmed. So I think this, yes, it's important for the base, but it's also important for future elections and posterity to show, to make it very clear who owns what's going to happen. And yeah, you, we've mentioned earlier that the evangelicals are thrilled about this. And I think in very much, this is Trump fulfilling his end of the bargain, right? He said, I mean, in essence, his argument was I'm a total Sodom and Gomorrah type. I've, ne- I've haven't lived one moment of my life in a Christ-like way, but vote for me and I'll let you take abortion away from people. And they said deal. And so now he's holding up his end of that bargain. And that is what it is. So Democrats can't stop it, 
but they do need to make 100% clear that they do not endorse it. And my fear for them is that they're so in wrapped up in this fantasy world of bipartisanship, and specifically that Republicans will reward them for being bipartisan, um, that they'll vote for this guy and then own all the stuff that happens for the next, you know, 40 years of his life or however long he lives. Every time, he, you know, every time something bad happens that he is the deciding vote on, that'll be on whoever confirms him. I do think your point about the value of the, like the, the meaningfulness of the Supreme Court, that there will also be actual decisions, aside from the tactics, that there will be actual decisions impact people's yeah. lives, is important. And it also serves as a useful segue, because uh, last week we were talking about the Muslim ban and potential constitutional crisis uh, about the Muslim ban, and now we're sort of potentially heading towards an actual constitutional crisis as the uh, as a as a judge issued, um, Judge Robart in Seattle issued a blanket nationwide stay on that executive order with, with regard to everything but the cutback in refugees. And that led to a challenge by uh, the Trump administration through the Department of Justice um, to that that's been pushed to the Ninth Circuit now to review Robart's decision. Um, but so that after that, after the Ninth Circuit decides then uh, – Either party can challenge and send that to the Supreme Court, uh, which right now is in, there's only eight members. So in theory, there's a potentiality of a deadlock. Any deadlock would basically make the previous circuit court de- determination stand. I mean, the I, I don't know. My constitutional crisis meter has actually gone down a little bit since last week. Um, the big constitutional crisis warning sign I was worried about last week was CBP agents not obeying the court order. And it seems that more recently they have started to obey that nationwide court order. So, so that's my for, constitutional yeah. crisis meter. <laughs> so for the moment, checks and balances do seem to be appearing to play out in the actual like nation of laws kind of way that they're supposed to do. Yeah. I mean, pretty much. You know, it's never <laughs> one of the secret. One of the dirty secrets is like it's never a hundred percent perfect. You know, you're sure. always yeah. there's all, CBP officials will sometimes be dicks to people in a way that they're not supposed to be. You know, but um, the systematic disobeying of a court order would be really dangerous. Department of Homeland Security said that they would follow uh, Judge Robart's uh, stay on the order, um, so that. So then uh, Customs and Border Protection, CBP, is, is obeying that. The, the issue with regard to potential constitutional crisis is, is that the president um, does not seem interested in obeying that and doesn't really like the idea that they're having to, to, to listen to, this, to Judge Robart. He, called, uh, what was the, he tweeted out uh, in the aftermath of uh, the decision being handed out um, in Seattle, he called him a so-called judge, which got a lot of play. And, yeah, uh, absolutely. Basically, Challenge the idea that, that the president should listen to the judiciary. In fact, the uh, opinion, that their, their argument that they're making right now is that the executive branch has wide latitude and discretion in what is nominally peacetime. So they're not at war with any of these seven countries. That during peacetime, the president has the, the right to make decisions without really notifying the other branches of government of what information has led those decisions to be being made. Um, and that would essentially allow the president to... Uh, to do whatever he wants, if they hold that up. But I mean, Absolutely. W- one one outcome 
that could happen is, I mean, if he continues to put up things that then get um, judged unconstitutional and then the, um, the people executing those orders continue to follow the judiciary and not the executive branch, it, it, it could just end up with Trump, you know, quiet, you know, tweeting angrily in his, you know, White House and nobody listening, which is... Right. I mean, you know, that's like... The, like that, and that's not a, that's actually a great success of the Constitution that we managed to hire a total asshole, and there he is being a total asshole. But nobody actually has to listen to him in situations where they don't have to listen to him. Yeah, this is an ideal vision in a way. No, I'm like not a, saying ideal vision. Yeah, this is like I'm saying this is like crisis, crisis no, management. You we know, should I design think that's the ideal. Sorry, John. But I'm saying that's an ideal vision of what will happen, is that Trump yeah. will be so isolated. Sure, 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 sure. He's already not that isolated, given that what he's already done. And the question does come down to like whether the executive branch will follow through on listening to these later court decisions. If he continues to attack the judges who make them, there's means by which he could listen to the decisions that, is, in essence, the Department of Homeland Security obeys them. But he doesn't really listen in, as the head of the executive branch and leads to a constitutional crisis by undermining both uh, checks and balances and separation of powers. That, he's definitely that already certainly remains. Yeah. He's for sure undermining it. And I don't know that it would be like, could you design a self-driving car good enough that you could put someone who wanted to crash the car in the driver's seat and it would still be fine. You know, like Trump right. personally yeah. doesn't yeah. like being limited. He doesn't like the checks and balances. It's very clear he calls the guy a so-called judge. He basically says, like, next time there's a terrorist attack, I'm going to abolish the judicial... I mean, you know, I'm reading between the lines. But he he said, next time there's a terrorist attack, blame the judiciary, which is setting yes. up for, you know, bad... That's a bad path to be on. So, you know, Tom, I think the sort of apathy and ignoring him path would be like the best outcome we can hope for, but it's still a pretty bad outcome. You really want a president who like likes the system of government that yeah, he's part of. Yeah, but I have very, of. very little hope of finding that. I mean, I expect no, him I have to no attempt hope. to undermine the. He doesn't even understand what these other branches are doing there. You know, why aren't they just doing what he tells them? They're getting um, in his way, is what so, they're doing. So the very. I was just. Your comment was that you know so far. People are listening, you know, are following the idea of checks and balances, which is kind of, you know, good. It could have gone, it could have been tipping the other way, and and we well, have to be it, paying attention to it. But and it still may, yeah, yeah, yeah. It and absolutely, of course, still a massive, may. a massive level of paying attention. It was just like yeah. genuine effort on the part of like the ACLU, um, yeah, to make to oh, make this terrible. case like it's thousands I mean, of people going to airports for hours. I think a, 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 a large amount of American tech companies issued a, I guess, was it maybe an amicus brief or filed an amicus brief, um, but on behalf of, of going against this executive order, because they have employees from these countries who are vital to their economic interests, who are incredibly useful employees with knowledge and expertise they can't get from elsewhere, and they're worried about losing those employees and future employees because of this executive order. There will be people. There will be a brain drain, which, I, I, as far yeah. as uh, we can understand the tea leaves of this administration, they would probably be enthusiastic for. <laughs> yeah. 
Because they have a guy um, who – maybe this is the, the next amazing segue that I achieve somehow. <laughs> they have a guy who's advocated uh, – who's been antagonistic to the very idea of Asian American and South Asian uh, CEOs and tech executives. Um, yeah. In fact, to like just keep – Just existing. To yeah. double down on what we were talking about, he, he's also like – he's also on the record as completely opposing – you know, having a government, everything the government stands for, and yet there he is as essentially second in command, Mr. Steve Bannon, or our actual president, President hashtag President or, uh, Bannon, yeah, actual hashtag President Bannon, yeah. Uh, Bannon also might be pushing uh, Trump towards antagonism with the judiciary. I'm sure he enjoys it. He he seems to enjoy the possibility of chaos, um, but. Bannon and Trump might be having a fissure as well. From There was a report in the New York Times that the uh, executive order that put Bannon on the National Security Council, which we talked about last time, um, and also removed the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff from that National Security Council and um, uh, the Director of National Intelligence, that Trump didn't properly read the executive order before he signed it. Which was so probably that's a kind way to put that. I, yeah. We could just say didn't read didn't didn't thoroughly vet. He didn't, didn't extremely understand. Vet yeah, there was a lack order. of extreme vetting on his part. Of I think that's they, the best way to put they it. They didn't release the full text of the uh, of the ban of the yeah. of the order to Trump before they yeah, had him to, sign it. Yeah. So the guy who wrote it or um, wrote himself into being on the National Security Council, and then when Trump, the report in the New York Times was that Trump was displeased when he realized how much power Bannon now had. In theory, he could easily revoke this power, right? He, he, he would just have to challenge Bannon. Well, um, he'd have to write an executive order, and he may not know how to do that. Seems like a lot of work. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean I'm kind of joking, use. but like this guy appears to just like sign whatever gets put in front of him and then have a big smile and say some dumb, you know, be like, big stuff we're yeah. doing here. And shake everybody's hand and then go yell at the television in a bathrobe. Well, he's making America great again. Right. He's not actually <laughs> governing. Yeah. He's definitely yeah, not governing. We've never felt... I've never felt America be this great since maybe... 1862. Sometime in the, yeah, during the Civil War. So, uh... So I think he's... A, I think he actually does stand by the words he says. I do... I do... I will admit to that. So where is this now? I mean, is he going to stay on the council? Is so what far, is he doing yeah. there? At the moment, he's he Bannon is on the council. That, that's how it is at the moment. Uh, Did they make that... any argument for why he makes sense to be there? No, no, huh. he doesn't have to. There is. I've heard talk of that the Senate would have to actually approve him because because if he's a civilian or something. But yeah, there's some obscure requirement that's never come up before. <laughs> Well, but they always put qualified people in, right? And I know that there's a a bill. Someone in Congress is introducing a bill to remove Steve Bannon from the National Security Council. I think it's a Democrat. I'd have to look into. Yeah, it in the in the House. Yeah, which so that does not going to do anything. But no, I mean the president has brought, has a lot of discretion over who sits on the National Security Council, and Trump put him on, and so he's on. Uh, it, also, in that article, though. Um, not that this affects Steve Bannon's situation, uh, was that Priebus is now instituting rules about uh, basically checks and balances that anything that goes in front of the president has to also go in front of, like, 
a 10-step checklist and a whole bunch of other people's eyes to make sure that this stuff doesn't happen again because it's just frankly like what whatever you think about the policy it's super embarrassing like, i'm really reassured that that way. wasn't the that at first they were like we don't need to yeah. worry we'll just have him sign whatever executive orders he wants yeah. and then two weeks into it they're like hold on maybe someone should read <laughs> these like what the hell sloppiness is in- endemic to this yeah administration in, in just very casual ways and like t- like typos like they keep yep. issuing yeah. statements replete with typos um the most recently Retracting them and re- removing yeah. words and there was one where they they were they put out a list of uh they, they said that the press doesn't cover terrorist attacks which is one of the most ridiculous things i've ever heard because i've been there when the, i've i've read and had days lost of my life just like just reading all the news we can about terrorist attacks but the, the news press you can like, about the same terrorist attacks that are in their list of yes. underreported terrorist attacks. So they, they gave out a list, list that Andrew's saying of underreported terrorist attacks. And in that list, the word attacker is frequently misspelled multiple times. <laughs> I didn't notice it's, that. It's A-T-T-A-K-E-R. Mm. There's also the same yeah, attack listed multiple times. It, it's like yeah. a very shoddy list. Yeah, it is. And mm. it includes Orlando. And so there's it a... includes Elizabeth, New Jersey. It's just a list of things we either have heard about or are like one guy with a knife in Saudi Arabia uh, that are and none of them involve any domestic or also none of them involved anything to do with with white terrorists. None of the ones with white terrorists made that list. That's also true. Yeah. Well, that's a there's a shady. I think there was thing happening there. No, they didn't put on the French. There was a no, not attack that. in Canada. It was a different French Canadian incident. But he was not a white Cana- French Canadian. That was that uh, attack. I don't know. Was. He had a white name. What so was the stated that. purpose for this list? What were they trying to do? So actually, it's entirely because of the Bowling Green massacre. So I mean, if you yeah. want to go back in time, Tom, you asked why they did this. They, what they did is they got caught in a lie that they first tried <laughs> to play off as a mis- hilariously bald faced lie. Ball-faced lie. And so then they had to justify that by saying, well, actually, the press doesn't know about all these terrorist attacks that they've like written copious articles about that people we've, we've all read because they've been, they're terrifying. Um, and it's because they have a strategy that they never back down, no matter how wrong they are, that they created this ridiculous list. Yeah, we should talk about the, the Bowling Green thing. I mean, we just do it. <laughs> so Kellyanne Conway goes on the morning news, uh, I forget which show, and refers to the Bowling Green Massacre as an example. The people are hitting her over, why are we banning people from these countries? They don't come and commit crimes. What is all this? This is a stupid travel ban. You're stupid. Dear God, what's happening? And so she said, there's all kinds of terrorist attacks. Think of the Bowling Green Massacre. There, there's no such thing. It, there's nothing, file not found. There is yeah. no Bowling Green Massacre nor was there ever. <laughs> she turns out to be... Some people have theorized that she's referring to two Iraqi men who lived in Bowling Green and Kentucky. who earlier had, unrelatedly to Bowling Green, been uh, manufactured IEDs to, in the Iraq War and blown up soldiers. So that's a bad thing. But it isn't a Bowling Green massacre. I think it was. She was trying to prove 
that refugees who would have been affected mm-hmm. by the travel the travel ban had previously done acts of terrorism because the point is that no one from no one no person from those countries has committed uh an act of terror that has killed any americans um it's in i don't know how many years but certainly you have to like further back than 911 because the 911 attackers none of them would have been caught in that travel ban uh so she pointed this example of these two Iraqi refugees who came here as refugees from Iraq, who created IEDs when they were in Iraq, but they also were basically um, caught up in an FBI sting operation where someone came to them and asked them, would you want to raise money to give to people attacking in, in Iraq? And they said, sure, we'll help raise money for, this, for these terrorists back in Iraq. And it turned out that person who had come to them was an FBI informant, and the whole thing was a sting operation. So they went through enough to incriminate themselves and then were rounded up for a non-existent plot because it was entirely the invention of the FBI, and then were tried um, and found guilty and sent back to Iraq, I believe. Uh, they were, and this, this caused, I think, the Obama administration to reinvestigate how strong um, their vetting was for refugees, which they did, which led to a slowdown for six months. And then before they resumed a full, um, a full allowance of, of refugees coming in from Iraq. This, this, that, that slowdown is often cited as an example of Obama having a, a travel ban on refugees, which is false, given the information. Well, it's the difference between some real thing happened and it led to them reviewing and updating their policies versus being afraid of Muslims, but only Muslims from countries that don't have Trump investments in them. It's a huge difference. Yeah, and it's also an example of a process working. Like, we have a process. It worked. We made the process better so it would work even better. Um, And in theory, we have that better process in place. And then there's a non-existent idea that if we don't have this ban, bad hombres will come streaming into the country immediately, which is... Bad just Iranian a, hombres. Yeah, hombres is a word that... It's, a, it's not just Spanish, it's also Farsi. Um, <laughs> and, but they would just come streaming in as if there isn't people vetting refugees normally. Well, this right. just goes back to what we talked, the endemic incompetence and sloppiness. I mean, it was obvious that they have no idea how the immigration system works. Mm-hmm. People have to go for through months of interviews to get visas. I mean, yeah. the whole thing is just insane. Um, so, Tom, does that like does it help? Uh, what do you think now that now that you know that <laughs> they gave you this they carried this insane list to to support a lie that they themselves got caught saying? Just straight up terrible. I mean, it's exactly <laughs> what. <laughs> I mean, I think it is. I think you you hit it right on the head there with them being totally. Uh, I mean, it, it, it was an ide- ideologically driven um, move, you know, paying back their base and the, their wanting to keep, um, you know, brown-skinned people out of America, and now they're trying to come up with reasons. Uh, and they're doing it such a terrible job. I mean, that's the weirdest thing. That she yeah, this would... is a guy who was elected on I mean, they should be ready being for this. great at business and <laughs> operations. <laughs> Anybody who read any, who knew anything about him, would know he's not great at business. But I mean, Tom, to your point, <laughs> it's absolutely. I think they're so limited in their ability to respond to problems by his particular quirks. So, like Sean Spicer can't say, you know, 
yes, it's true that it was a little sloppier than we would have hoped and we're working the kinks out, right? That would be a thing you could say in that situation to diffuse some of the difficulty. But you're not allowed to say that because you're working for Trump. And so you have to say, this was the best executive order rollout ever. No other executive order has been rolled out this well. People love it. It's the it's fantastic. And so you basically are not able to connect to reality in any way if you're working on his team. He refuses to admit when he is wrong, even if he has to be in, like inconsistent within the same breath to, to to make his stand. Like he gave an interview to uh, Bill O'Reilly that ran during the Super Bowl, but was leaked a little bit before that. And in that interview, he sort of talks about you know he's asked about this this travel ban, and he sort of says that he doesn't need data to make his own opinions. And then the next day, tweets out about how he's like data driven. So he just doesn't want to be caught like once he realizes there's a thing he should have ought to have said he actually just says that he always had said that regardless yeah. of whether he had ever said that before that point in time he doesn't admit that he learned something he just makes it seem like that knowledge was always existing with him even if he said statements to the the the, the whatever the the mental calculus he uses to make his statements i think is really hard to crack and i think it's also somewhat why we're we're slow to respond i mean this is these are people who have continually lied, often transparently lied. Um, how do you take any of this information? Like just today, he had a meeting with sheriffs, and he told the sheriffs that the murder rate in the United States is the highest it's been in 47 years, which is just untrue. I mean, the murder rate it's is It's not like, just untrue. It's like incredibly untrue. Incredibly untrue. It's, it's da- it's been, it went down starting in the early 90s it's it's been on a pretty much steady decline and you know new york has had the lowest murder rate in i don't know how and how long like this year you can't get murdered there no matter what you try i've i've tried to kill <laughs> andrew multiple times and i just can't seem to succeed i'm like come to chicago i'll kill you there and he just refuses to get on the plane um, so he's, he has this added, you know, no one, and then I saw Kellyanne Conway talk about this on, on CNN in an interview with Jake Tapper. She finally was brought back after the Bowling uh, Green massacre comment. And, um, although that was actually to MSNBC, but she just said that she doesn't know where he got his data from. So, I mean, what's she supposed to say? I I don't know. I mean, are, I think it's just it's just a it's a tamer version. Like, if that's what she says every time, is I don't know where he got his data from. Maybe we it starts to be like what you know Tom was hoping is an ideal that the president is some sort of isolated individual well, tweeting yeah. from from some room in the White House as everyone sort of ignores him and tries to get along their business of destroying the country conventional ways. I feel uh, like what I've something I've seen in the media more and more maybe mostly from like Washington Post and, and the Times is is president claims such and such. So they're really they're taking his words and just discounting them in a way that that never was really done before. It was always it was always like the words were news on the on their own and now it's almost like Snooky claims such and such, you know? Yeah, I mean comparing him to a reality show uh, celebrity is pretty. I would rather have Snooki as president. He is a reality show celebrity. He is a reality show celebrity. Um, but the problem is, his words. Some people take his words as if they're 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 true. I, I mean, was just thinking the same thing. That's yeah. that's the problem we've got. Is the thirty five percent of America? Right. I mean, there there is a real, not the majority, but a large group of people who are on his side, who do believe that he gets it right, and that the media is lying yeah. to them. 
And I think even if the institutional Washington, you know, bodies started to ignore him like you're talking about and the news, you know, the media and and me and you, I don't think that that would really solve, that would become a different problem. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the issue is that there are politicians, most of them Republican, I'm sure there might be a few Democrats I don't know about, but most of them Republican who are willing to use the delusions that the president puts forth and that certain individuals accept to their advantage until people wake up and are willing to confront their politicians who are lying to them and basically taking money from them or taking uh, financial livelihood from them in many cases. Um, potentially health care from them in a very real battle looming this year. Uh, it's very hard to know what to do because you, you can't from some urban center go into rural Kentucky, for example, or eastern Kentucky and say, hey, I'm going to like get you back into business by putting um, a green energy solar cell facility here. When, unless they're willing to renounce coal and turn their back on individuals who are spending lots and lots of money to, to, pay, to, to elect people like Mitch McConnell who are willing to actually cut pensions for, former, for people who worked in the coal industry. I mean, the, this voting against self-interest frame that's talked about a lot, until we can untangle that, it's very hard to know how to reach individuals. And it, at the same time, trying to untangle that, I had like a personal story to just today where I was on Twitter just countering points Trump supporters made, uh, this particularly two Trump supporters who happened to be on a thread about Ivanka Trump. Um, and at one point, one of them just blocked me to just dismiss my counterclaims. I mean, he was saying things like George Soros is a Nazi, which is just untrue. Like I just – that protesters are paid, which is just untrue. And I wish. You, yeah, we all wished. Um, you know, it's just – if people – like the, this bubble thing has been talked about for a long time, and I think the bubble that we exist in was we sort of just thought it would, it would be a problem that would solve itself on its own. Like, oh, well, the facts aren't on their side. You know, the politicians have to f- sort of follow fact. It's just for, for the, you know, that's how else would you make policy? Eventually, th- these things will, will run their course, and that turned out to be false. But the bubble that they live in is just a complete information bubble where they're li- living in a parallel America. Uh, and, and in that parallel America, Trump is like a trustworthy, true Chris- Christian, and the things that he is saying are things that the mainstream media, as, as has been as, as a phrase that's used to discredit a variety of outlets just are, are hiding for nefarious reasons that I don't really want to go into because they pretty much immediately lead to anti-Semitism. Well, I was I, as you were describing that, I think you know, I think of a lot of Trump stuff in terms of bargains, and you know what is it that he's giving these individuals that you're talking about that is so important to them that they'll, you know, as we've talked about. Many Trump voters benefit from the Affordable Care Act, and that's just one example. And, you know, for me, it it comes back to anti-Semitism, racism, and sexism. You know, there are these issues that people have strong attachments to that are not talked about, and I feel like we often end up signaling around those, and I feel like it's sort of taboo to talk about them, and we don't necessarily have to talk about them in this situation but to me what he's giving them is and what make america great again means is that white men will be on top again 
And there's people who really want that, and they want it so much that they're willing to make the bargain. I think there's another, there's a, a second piece too, um, which is I've encountered a couple of times recently, which is uh, particularly among people who've not been so well off to feel like everything is fucked and everything is fucked forever. And mm-hmm. so a lot of this like really doesn't matter. Nobody's doing anything in our interest. At least these simple social things that we like can like, we can agree on those things. Um, anything else is like too complicated. And I know that you're taking advantage of me somehow. So I don't give a shit about that. Even when, they would benefit directly from it. I totally agree. And yeah. Bannon actually deployed such nihilism as part of his election tactics, trying yeah. to demoralize black voters, trying to demoralize people. Um, and then this also goes back to 1980, when Republicans decided that their platform was that government sucks and should be gotten rid of, and will prove it. You know, And then they set out over the next yeah. 35 years to totally to ruin the ability of government to do anything for anybody. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. And I think there's a continuum between those things where you sort of, you know, it's like on the one hand, you say, wouldn't it be nice if things, if you were on top again? And then on the other hand, you say, you know, these people, you can't trust anybody and there's no hope for anything to get better. So why, right. you know, why care? Yeah. yeah I mean, what's sort of dispiriting in many, in many ways in the context of, of say, refugees, um, as I, I was like watching a, a friend of mine on Facebook talk with, talk with some individuals and someone, I don't know if they're, they're friends or not. Uh, I knew this person, I met him in New York. Um, and this other person, he now, my friend now lives in, in Richmond, Virginia. This other person said, you know, if you want to pay for th- their heart transplants, if you want to pay for their schooling, then, then you can, if you want to pay for where they stay, you can do that. But I, but if I don't want to do it, let me not do it. And the person he was talking to, my friend, uh, came here as a child when his father had a, a kidney problem um, from Argentina, when th- he was part of a political class that was being hunted by the Argentine government. And he got a, a, a visa to just have a, a, an operation so that he could survive, a kidney operation so he could survive, and he lived another like th- 35 years. So he was telling an individual who came here as essentially a refugee for the purpose of healthcare, if you want to pay for that thing, you go pay for that thing. And I'm bewildered that that would be the act of anyone who would claim any level of, of Christian value or, or ever be concerned that anyone should have any level of empathy for, for their children or for their life. I mean, what has happened to American values that, that it's, you know, I, you know, I got mine, Jack, you get yours. This is... Frightening. I, I want to tell if you think that you should, you know, go to Russia, go to China, but get out of this country because that's not America. That's not the America that that I, I grew up looking at and having honestly conflicted feelings for. But always appreciating that, that that fundamentally we had ideals that were better than the basis instincts human beings lean on in times of fear. And and now it feels like if you put forward those ideals typically American ideals, somehow you're the one being called un-American. Yeah, I've been... My take on that is not a positive one. Um, I mean, I think I share your emotion, but I've also been reading a lot of 
pieces lately about how this is America, you know, that this also is America, the, you know, the country that was founded on the labor of slaves and, you know, and so on. There's all our history is full of hypocrisy, cruelty, evil. And so those are, you know, those are part of the story as well. It's just that we, we, it's like we haven't had to deal with an eruption of it to this extent, or maybe not, maybe the way to think of it, maybe the way I think of it as so overt, right? We talk about dog whistling, like George W. and Mitt Romney knew the proper ways to say things such that people would understand what they meant, but it would be, it would have that veneer. And whereas Trump just says, you know, I think Muslims aren't as important as white people, and I think we should ban them. And it seems much worse, but I'm not sure if it is worse or if it just looks, if it makes what is what was always bad more visible. Um, maybe. I, mean, I don't think he says things exactly like that. I, I, no, I, we had an attitude that slavery is like a dark chapter of American history. You know, we, we usually don't set, we don't, like have an anniversary celebrating Japanese internment. So I think that there's notions that uh, while America certainly has done awful things, that, you know, genocide of, the, of, of Native Americans to yeah. help found this country, that America as a country has ideals that surpass that. And that the individuals who, who sort of uh, frame these ideals in, in our laws in, through the Constitution um, had ideals that superseded their own vision. I mean, Jefferson towards his deathbed is not the Jefferson that wrote the Declaration of Independence. Um, but the, I mean, the noble ideal of America used to be a thing that, in theory, conservatives had. And now we have a president who, when confronted with the fact that Putin has killed political rivals, says, yeah, but we're not, you know, what do you think, we're, we're that innocent? Well, but I think you and I feel like you and I are saying the same thing. So maybe I just didn't put what I said properly, because I think you're, I think the difference now is there's a president who doesn't believe in America or America's ideals. That's what's different. But there have been these racist strains that are run through America's history and the sexism and, and you know, the genocidal parts. Um, it's just that yeah. when you, it, it's different if you say the story is we've made some really bad mistakes and it's important to work to rectify those and we we are believing in these certain ideals and trying to strive for them. That's a story... That is, that's like what I think America means and what you're, what I hear you talking about. And I think it is very unsettling that for Trump, the story is more like, look, everybody's out for themselves. We just have to beat everyone else down more effectively than they beat us down. And that is un-American, but it's interesting, you know, it seems to actually be well enough aligned with what Republicans currently want that they are going along with it. And I think that's very revealing. Uh, but I think, I mean, I think going into the the question of what is American philosophy, isn't there like a long running strain of, you know, the the escapism and isolationism and uh, gold rush kind of um, just leaving when things aren't right and leaving other people behind and trying to find your own little enclave that doesn't let anyone else in I mean, that was like the whole story of i mean multiple um groups coming to america so i think some of that that idea that you should do it yourself and you shouldn't do it with the um 
and you need to protect what you have isn't isn't um, I mean exists in the American psychology and I think I've been really glad that it hasn't been so central for such a long time and um, it's sort of disappointing that it's getting this uh, stage but I don't think necessarily those aspects are outside of the American character. I think the American character is certainly divided. I mean, I mean the American history itself is obviously full of, of dark marks, and I think even some of you know people we would cite as American heroes for us personally did things that we also could cite as you know disturbing actions politically. Um, moral good, as, you know, in a human form is is never pure. We don't get meet purely good people for the most part. Again, what shocks me is just people turning away from typical American values, yet while claiming to be patriots. What is an, what is what are American values that were that they even formulate? I think Mike is is right in, in describing that Trump is, you know, Trump is a reality show, uh, a reality TV president, and and the seems in his you know American ethos is I'm not here to make friends, but. What does that say for the rest of us who are living here, and, and why are people turning to that? People who who cite scripture, who who may have who understand the history of religious persecution and the danger of it. Um, what is happening to individuals that they are in such need for a huckster willing to tell them a lie about this country, and that lie isn't even a good one. Yeah, so, I think that's a really interesting yeah. question. So, uh, given this situation, what are what are you doing about it now, John? To to keep yourself sane, like how do you how yeah, do, you how do we having how do we, to live in this? I mean, uh, how do we stay sane? I mean, I obviously am on a teary enough edge that I will try to engage a Trump fan on Twitter. <laughs> It hopes <laughs> well, no, that out. that's I mean, that's you, there's that's a high probability that you're going to change minds that way. I really yeah. think that's like a <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Um, I think we're all doing you know political actions that we can. I mean, we're all trying to we're making phone calls and we're writing to people and trying to. March I, I think I think an important thing is actually just creating uh, a sense of support for other Democrats, people who are afraid and angry, and making sure that people. Stay grounded and stay safe, and st- and don't flare up into you know outrageous ideas. Um, I think being emotionally supportive to everybody is important. Uh, I mean that's part of you know simple actions. I think uh, we were talking earlier, Andrew. We all sort of I think got benefit from watching SNL this uh, this weekend. The Melissa McCarthy Sean Spicer sketch. I yes. Think well, we, yeah. actually, for me, the opening sketch, the cold open, was equally sanity retaining from a political point of view um the moment where they had bannon sit at the president's desk and donald trump goes and sits at a little kitty desk with a fun toy <laughs> you know as we've been talking about president hashtag president bannon i think that was that was satisfying because you know he's watching <laughs> yeah yeah and, and but then and, yeah melissa mccarthy that's probably one of the top five political sketches of like the last 10 or 20 years is that a critical yeah, thing that that the humor or, or like just a critical 
um, style of attack to try and drive a rift between Trump and Bannon just because uh, we, we just know how thin-skinned he is and that may be the only way to disempower people around him. People are talking about that. I mean, the, the, there have been leaks that Trump is bothered by the idea that people see Bannon as running things and, and not Trump. Um, and that's linked a little bit to Bannon getting his way onto the National Security Council behind Trump's back, seemingly. Uh, they would obviously not admit that, but there is some well, t- tension there. There was also a reveal that Trump was upset with the Milson McCarthy sketch, uh, not because it portrayed Sean Spicer in a negative light. He, he's long known to not like Sean Spicer for appearance reasons, but that the that a female comedian was playing Sean Spicer bothered yeah. him. Um, because it like, made him look weak, allegedly. Yeah. Because Trump is a raging sexist. <laughs> Not all those other things he did, like post his password a dozen times. Yes, um, and and like you can see sort of the some of the weird neuroses that Trump has in the Gorsuch uh, announcement. Um, there's a they shake hands, and Trump, the way Trump shakes his hand is bewildering. Like it's a, clearly a dominance <laughs> act, but he basically yanks. The, uh, you know, the future Supreme Court justice's arm off. He like shakes it for a long time. You could see that Gorsuch is like, "Why am I still shaking your hand?" Then he just just tugs it. Um, and you also see how corpulent Trump is in that photo. Like his he's he's as wide as like uh, in um, Mad Max Fury Road. Like the the fat depraved dude who wants his wives back. He's like, "Is that thick that and guy?" Fat. It's hard for me to believe that guy's not based on Trump. I mean, I know temporally that's impossible, but... You know you know who's one of the producers of that movie? Steve Mnuchin. No. It's totally true. That's true. One of the many Trump appointees who who lied in their confirmation hearings. But we're in the sanity retention part of the show yeah. here. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. but, I, but I find all those things, these little leaks, at least giving a picture of what it's like, that, like, there is a leak that they can't... They haven't been able to turn the lights on in one of their conference rooms for the longest time, so they just have meetings in the dark <laughs> towards the end of the day. Like these ideas, um, I, I think the fear of humor is that sometimes it humanizes. There's some classic examples of this with, like, say, Farrell's George W. Bush person. Or the time Fallon rubbed Trump's hair. Well, that was not very funny. Um, but at the same time, humor has eviscerated political candidates. I would say that the White House correspondence dinner speech that Stephen Colbert gave during. Yeah, savage. Yeah, during Bush, uh, that that was the tipping point when suddenly everyone was willing to openly mock George W. Bush. And we, in a way, need something. We need a moment when his followers understand that they're not supporting a godlike figure. I mean, they've yeah. they've basically created a cult personality around him. But they crack that open and see that this is a very flawed, very human individual who is making decisions very irrationally, and that that puts us all in danger. And Tom, I would also say. I don't think I want Saturday Night Live to, like, identify political outcomes that they want and then try to make sketches to that end. But there is an overlap just in trying to identify tension points that can be mined for humor. Those are There's going to be an overlap with things that cause ripples to be in the world. you know. And it's also Trump's decision to get so hurt by these things. Saturday Night Live has been mean to many presidents in its time. Arguably all of them. Yeah, all, all. I mean, pretty much all of them. Yeah, and by mean, you mean like gently ribbing them. I mean, the mean Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, typically. it's it's a comedy show. So yeah. when I say mean, I mean like by the standards of, you know, you, you are able to tell when they find someone to be particularly hilariously incompetent versus mm-hmm. just trying to make fun of them. You know, and that's a challenge, I'm sure, for that show, writing political comedy. You know, I I groan when I, every cold open is political because I think that's 
not usually the funniest material on that show. But, you know, in this particular time, satire is is something that is, well, it helps me keep sane. Tom, what are, are you having issues? Or like, I mean, you know, you haven't done one of these podcasts up up to this point because of scheduling. But what do you? We do this sort of regular bit where we talk about what we do to keep sane in in these Trump times. <laughs> like, do you, are you? How are you feeling? What's your? Where are you at mentally? On all this? Um, I I try not to think about it as much as possible. I try and keep my mind on on work and family and anything else which is not the best place you know it's not the best place for society to have my mind um and i think that that's that's a problem that a lot of people are just so turned off by this current situation um that the simplest thing is just to retreat to the moment to moment problems of of life we we obviously don't want to end up in a situation where we've neglected our own lives um, and yeah. Trump is gone out of office, and suddenly it's like, wait a minute, who, what are, who is running America? Like, who, who, what are we? How did Don Jr. end up as president? Um, <laughs> yeah. Mm. Andrew, what, are, what are the things? I feel like maybe we're not as upset about the constitutional crisis as we were because things sort of seem to be actually working the way they're supposed to work. Um, there have been a lot of protests. None of them have been violent. A lot more are being planned and in very open and I think constructive ways. Um, and there's just there's just a a large community that's being built out of this that's that's activated in a way that I'm sure the administration was not hoping for um, when they started creating all of this chaos. And I so I for me personally, I've been finding some inspiration in those things um, and and using that. Um, I think one thing we all circled on before we began that we enjoyed and it relates to uh, it's a threads through a lot of the things we were talking about today hmm. um, was the Frederick Douglass comment that happened uh, to commemorate um, <laughs> Black African, History Month. Black History Month, African American History Month. African American History Month. Uh, on February 1st. Um, and uh, I think we're going to leave, uh, leave this podcast this week with uh, going through a little bit of those quotes from Mike. Um, this there's a sort of three part presentation about the great greatness of Frederick Douglass. So Donald Trump was talking uh, about African American History Month, and here here's what he said: I am very proud now that we have a museum on the National Mall where people can learn about Reverend King, so many other things. Frederick Douglass is an example of somebody who's done an amazing job and is getting recognized more and more. I notice. So Frederick Douglass is dead. Um, but it sounds like Trump may not know that. So then, following that, someone asked Sean Spicer for a little bit of maybe explanation or or what Trump was referring to. And so Spicer said, I think he wants to highlight the contributions that he has made. And I think through a lot of the actions and statements that he's going to make, I think the contributions of Frederick Douglass will become more and more. So, <laughs> yeah. Frederick Douglass still dead in that. Frederick Douglass remains yeah. dead this whole time. But, um, now he his great contributions yeah. are great, but but they are they're at an end. He has made the contributions. So so it's hilarious to me that Donald Trump and Sean Spicer either authentically don't know who Frederick Douglass is. 
or Sean Spicer does but has to pretend he doesn't so that he can try to make it seem like Trump is not <laughs> you know, well, failing American history at a sixth that, grade level. That is a reading of what Spicer... I assumed Spicer just clearly also didn't know, and it confirmed for me that Trump didn't know who... I have trouble was. believing that Spicer didn't know. I, I don't have trouble believing that Trump didn't know, but I do think it would... Tr- Sean would have lost his job immediately if he had no, said, I, well, Donald Trump doesn't know who that is, but I do. I don't think you talk about him as someone who would be continuing to make a contribution. He could at least... Well, that's true. Talk about him in the past tense, understanding that he's dead. In the initial Trump statement, he talked about Omarosa, or Omarosa, uh, more really the Frederick Douglass of our time than Frederick Douglass or Martin Luther King. Um, So then that led um, that leads us to a way to go out this week. Yep. So so uh, I thought. Well, we thought. Well, John thought it would be appropriate to share (laughs) some uh, an example of Frederick Douglass's contributions, which which. Uh, are becoming more and more, I've noticed. So here is some uh, passage from Frederick Douglass, and it goes, Those who profess to favor freedom and yet deprecate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. Find out just what any people will quietly submit to, and you have found out the exact measure of injustice and wrong which will be imposed upon them. The limits of tyrants are prescribed by the endurance of those whom they oppress. Men may not get all they pay for in this world, but they must certainly pay for all they get. Frederick Douglass. Right, th- thanks for listening, everybody. This has been uh, another sanity check. Or possibly stay insane. <laughs> <laughs> Brought to you by the Southern Defense League. <laughs> 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 <laughs>